Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday. It is May 29th, 2020, and I'm happy that you could join me. Those of you who are familiar with me, familiar with my program, know that I was an INS senior special agent, worked for the old INS for a total of 30 years, uh, made law enforcement my life's work, and ever since the terror attacks of 9-11, I've been a determined American, if you will, and New Yorker to get people to understand the clear nexus <clears throat> between immigration, immigration law enforcement, national security, public safety, and a host of other issues. But, again, I was a law enforcement officer. And uh, so today what I want to start out talking about, <clears throat> pardon me, is the uh, death of George Floyd allegedly at the hands of a former Minneapolis police officer by the name of Derek Chauvin. And I have to tell you, uh, I saw the videos. They were almost impossible to watch. Law enforcement requires professional conduct, requires an appreciation for the sanctity of human life and the dignity of the people that we interact with, including people we arrest. And and I'd like to just go back a little bit of my own history, my own recollections as as a law enforcement officer, because, you know, people think immigration and they think, well, is that, you know, the same as being a cop? And in many ways it is. You're taking people into custody. You're depriving people their freedom of movement. And we had an old timer on my job, um, and and Jack Stern was an amazing guy. He had uh, been in the Marine Corps. I believe he served at Iwo Jima. He was a real big bull. He was a real powerful guy. He became a New York City police officer, rose to the rank of sergeant, retired from the PD, and then came to work for the INS. That was before there was an age cutoff that would have made such a second career impossible in later years. And Jack was one of those guys who became a mentor to so many of us. He took us under his wing and really tried to make certain that we got it right, that we didn't mess up and that we did a good job because he understood the significance of the work that we were doing, and he was a real leader. There's not many real leaders in this world, but Jack Stern was a real leader. He was was a a fearless guy, but he was also a very sensible and caring man. And, in fact, he'd been a highway patrol cop. I mean, this guy, if you want to talk about macho, we used to jokingly call Jack the Jewish redneck, Uh, but he was really a, a great role model. And I remember as a new agent, he told us a bunch of things that really I I jotted down in my mental Rolodex, and they stayed with me throughout my career. And the first thing I will never forget Jack saying to us, there were a bunch of us sitting around having a cup of coffee, and he was kind of holding court, if you will. And he said, you know, as a federal agent, you certainly have the right to deprive people their freedom of movement. That's what an arrest is. You have handcuffs, you have a gun to back up the handcuffs, you have the authority when the situations warrant, and these are very careful situations, 
to deprive an individual of their freedom of movement. But he said, remember one thing. You will never, ever have the right to deprive anybody their dignity as a human being. Think about that statement. You do not have the right to deprive anyone their dignity as a human being. And he was right. And I can tell you that myself and most of my colleagues made it a practice that if we were going to arrest somebody, and uh, if we were going to arrest somebody, um, you know, we tried not to put the handcuffs on in front of that person's family, especially the children, because we know how traumatic it must be for a child to see their mother, their father, or big brother, whatever, handcuffed and arrested. There's enough trauma going on in that family that you want to be careful to respect the sensibilities of everybody concerned. But not everybody should be in law enforcement. Not everyone has the temperament. And I remember reading an article in an FBI magazine. They, the FBI published a magazine. I don't know if they still do. It's been many years since I was last on the job. <clears throat> but one of the topics, and it was written by a former, I think he was a former agent, also had a degree in criminology, perhaps psychology. And he had what I thought was a brilliant idea. You know, l- let me preface this by telling you that I know so many conservatives uh, make some really nasty remarks about civil servants. And, and that really should stop, folks. The people who work for the government are trying to make the government operate, you know. You can't have an army without soldiers. You can't have a hospital without doctors. You can't have a federal bureaucracy that we depend on without the bureaucrats and without the agents. And if you have an issue with the bureaucracy and the laws, talk to the politicians. They're the ones that are behind us. The average bureaucrat, the average law enforcement officer goes out there and enforces the laws that are on the books. And if you don't like the laws, that's cool. Approach the lawmakers and tell them to change the law. By the way, as you know, if you're familiar with my program, I did that. I convinced Senator Al D'Amato at the time. He was our senior, senior senator here in New York State to make the crime of unlawful reentry by criminal aliens a 20-year maximum felony for criminal aliens. Because up until then, there was no distinction made. So we, we almost never prosecuted aliens who were deported and came back. <clears throat> and among them were some very evil people rapists, child molesters, robbers, murderers, arsonists, terrible, terrible examples of the human species. And the whole point to deporting someone is to get them off the streets so they don't pose a threat, which is why sanctuary cities infuriate me on a scale that you will never appreciate. You can figure it out. But I did this job for 30 years, got injured a bunch of times, and saw some of my colleagues wind up in wheelchairs and worse. So to make a mockery of the laws that are our first line of defense is insane. It's it's a suicide pact. But the point is the laws are what they are, and the law enforcement officers enforce the laws that are on the books, not the laws that we wish for on the books, but the laws that are on the books. And so um, everyone says, well, you can't fire a civil servant. Well, actually, you can. I've been there when, when, when other agents were, were, were fired. It, it does happen. And some people don't want to leave the job because they don't want to lose their pension. People say, oh, they get lackadaisical because they can't be fired. First of all, they can be fired. And what most of you don't realize is that the longer you stay in a civil service job, the more the system can pull your chain whenever they want to because you don't want to lose your pension. You may have invested 15 or 18 or 20 years and and whatever it is, 
and, and for me to retire, I had to meet two requirements, 20 years in law enforcement, which I certainly had, and you had to be more than age 50. On your 50th birthday, we used to call the day when you met those requirements, KMA day, kiss my, uh, <clears throat> okay, kiss my backside day. And, and the idea was that now you were liberated. Now, if, if you had to leave the job, you had your pension, so the, the, the pull that the bosses had on you kind of evaporated. You didn't want to get fired. You didn't want to lose the job. But you knew that if you went out the door, you went out the jo- door with your pension. And so many people stay on the job long after they've become disenchanted and don't want to be there, but they don't want to lose their pension. And it's serious consideration because that's one of the attractions of being a federal agent or being a police officer or being a civil servant. You don't make the money that the people in the private sector do. Almost all of my friends made lots more money than I could ever imagine earning. I mean, I didn't do badly. I'm not complaining. I made a decision to take the job. And I always tell people, if you think that people in law enforcement have it better than you, then why didn't you become a cop or a federal agent? What stopped you? And then you would hear the truth. Well, I didn't want to have to carry a gun. I didn't want to risk my life. Well, okay, so the people that do risk their lives in part are paid for hazardous duty, if you will. So I'm never envious of anybody else. My parents made sure that I wasn't. They said, if you think someone's got a better deal than you, blame yourself for not being smart enough to do what they're doing. Reasonable statement. But this guy that wrote the article for the FBI magazine said, you know, there are some people who get so burned out, become so disenfranchised and disenchanted, that maybe we ought to let people leave after five years with a greatly reduced pension. Now, now think about that. Think about that. People join the military. They sign up for a hitch. It doesn't have to be that they're lifers, as they use the term, people who stay in for a full career. They serve America for whatever it is, five years, eight years, whatever the period is, and then they return to civilian life. Maybe the solution to try to help address some of the crazy stuff that goes on with people who have round pegs and square holes or who become emotionally damaged because of being in law enforcement. Think of all the suicides that we see. Think of all the problems you see with uh, alcoholism. Being in law enforcement, I will tell you this, folks, is traumatic on a scale that unless you've carried a badge, you have no idea. Don't even tell me you think you know. Whenever I travel around the country, and and I've been to Minnesota, and in fact the sheriffs there gave me a ride-along. I spent an evening tour in in a a sheriff's-marked vehicle. And we were talking about how people who've never served in law enforcement really don't understand, really don't understand. And it creates such stress. And law enforcement officers typically die young, working the crazy hours, You go from zero to 60 in terms of adrenaline. You're in the car one minute, everything is fine, and then something happens either in front of you or a call comes in on the radio, shots fired, and now you're racing through the streets at high speed, and you know you're going into a gunfight. Just stop and think about that. Somebody once described law enforcement officers as those people who run towards that which rational people would run from. Am I justifying what happened? Absolutely not. What I saw in that video, and I don't want to prejudge the case, and everybody 
everybody, everybody, everybody charged with a crime is innocent until proven guilty. We need to remember that. And that's not a way of saying I'm defending this guy, but we must preserve the system. There are people that want this cop lynched. And I understand the anger. I understand the anger. Believe me, I do. It was horrific beyond words. What, what I saw in that video is the stuff of nightmares. You couldn't make it worse if you tried. But we have to believe that the system needs to run its course. We're a nation of law, and that's what that means. I've sat on two criminal juries, and each time when the judge charged the jury, the judge made a very important point. When there is a trial, not only is the defendant on trial, but the entire system is on trial. So when you have people screaming, lynch this guy, all need to come out. This is a deliberative process. We're not going to be barbaric, even though what I saw was barbaric beyond words in that video. We are better than that. And I don't know what's wrong with that guy. I don't know what his personal situation is. And frankly, I don't care. I really don't care. The fact of the matter was when you put handcuffs on somebody and the person is not resisting, it's over. It's over. I've seen situations where you try to arrest somebody and the guy punches a cop or an agent right in the face. Boom. Okay. You might want to slug him back. Whatever. But the jargon that we use is you use minimum force necessary to affect the arrest. Those aren't just words, folks. That's the standard. Whatever it takes, the minimum amount of force, you don't beat a guy over with a, over the head with a crowbar and said, yeah, use minimum force. No, that's not the way it works. And that's why you had to be in good physical condition, not only to be able to chase people, but to be able to subdue them if you had a wrestling match. And I'll tell you what, we had occasions. I remember one time we had a young man. I, I forget if he was from China. He might have been. This was so many years ago, perhaps 40 years ago. Uh, if you've seen my picture, you see all the gray hair. You know where it came from, not just my kids. <laughs> Actually, I have uh, some of the best kids in the world. I'm truly blessed. But we arrested this guy on the suspicion that he was here illegally. We were sitting him in an interview room and having a conversation. And the more that we went through his immigration file, and we came to the conclusion that this was Friday night, and there was no choice that he needed to see a judge. There was no way we could release him. He had jumped bail previously. So, and we gave him the news. We said, okay, listen. You're going to spend the night, the weekend in, in lockup, and you'll be seeing a judge first thing Monday morning. And this little guy who was about five foot eight, and I don't think he weighed 135 pounds, dripping wet, went insane. When I tell you that he went insane, I mean he went literally insane. <clears throat> he got up, <clears throat> threw a chair at me. This is like a knife fight in, in a phone booth. Because the room that we were in is about as big as a small bathroom. It's a small little room with a table and, and four chairs, and, 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 and you're sitting there having this interview. It's a little, we had a bunch of those rooms, so you could sit there and, and, and interview someone in private, quietly, with no distractions. The guy grabbed the chair from under him, threw it at me. I ducked. It smashed into the wall. My partner jumped up. I jumped up, and everyone heard the noise, and everyone started to pile into the room, and this guy went berserk. He started kicking and screaming and swinging at us and spitting on us, and he bit one of the guys. This guy was like a whirling dervish, out of control. He was a human tornado, human tornado, and he was absolutely out of control. It took five of us 
picture this, five of us in that tight room with the table and chairs to finally subdue him. And we wound up not only handcuffing his arms behind his back, we handcuffed his legs together, his ankles. And we dragged him out of the room. And by the time it was over with, several of us, including him, wound up in the emergency room. And our guys were actually injured worse than he was. And we were furious. He bit one of us, spit at us, kicked us, through stuff. I mean, it was just insane. The guy, I've never experienced anything quite like that and never experienced it again. But this guy just absolutely snapped. We didn't start beating him up after the fact. He's in handcuffs. We've subdued him. He's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. We arranged him to get treatment at the emergency room. We brought him back. We put him in the lockup. We warned the detention officers. This guy is a problem. Keep an eye on him. You may want to put him in isolation for the weekend because he's completely out of control. The guy was, I don't know if he had mental illness issues. I don't know if he had been taking any drugs. But he went from zero to 100 in a a millisecond. He was calm and everything was great. And then I said, listen, the reality is you're going to have to see a judge on Monday and we can't let you go. And that was it. Someone flipped on the switch and this guy went into overdrive. And even under those conditions, he just had some bruises. Nobody, you know, broke chairs over his head. Nobody choked him. Nobody pummeled him. He had minor injuries. Actually, his injuries weren't nearly as bad as the injuries of a couple of my colleagues. They were far worse off. I think somebody wound up with a broken arm or a broken leg or something when he threw a chair. The point is, it's a matter of professionalism. This isn't about getting even with somebody. This isn't tag team wrestling like you see on TV. Your job as an agent is to contain the person, subdue the guy, and make sure that he's not going anywhere. And once you've achieved that, it's over. So to see a guy on the ground backcuffed, not resisting, saying he can't breathe, and, and more facts are coming out that are even more disturbing, I have no excuse for what I saw. I, I, I can't even begin to comprehend what I saw. But the rioting, my goodness. You know, the president made a statement, and he said, you know, looting, shooting follows looting, whatever. I know what the president was saying. In fact, somebody was killed in Minneapolis that night uh, during the rioting. Someone got shot. I don't know if the person was defending himself, his property, his store. Who knows? And I know what the president meant. And, you know, those of you who are familiar with me, those of you familiar with my program, you know, my dad was a, a tradesman, a construction worker, my biggest hero, next to my mom, the two of my I had two of the best parents in the world. I was very blessed. I, me, purely because of who my parents were and how they raised me. I've been on my own since I was 21. If they hadn't done the job with me, preparing me to be an adult, uh, I think I would have crumbled and collapsed. Uh, Instead, I I managed to to do what I had to do. And I've always played a game, and and I'll let you know my game, and I know it's not going to happen. But after I came home from burying my mom, I was 21 years old, and the game that I played, I had no brothers or sisters. I was really on my own, just me and my dog. And the game was if tomorrow there was a knock on the door, and my mom and dad or, or dad or both of them would be there, that God had given them a miracle. And, again, I knew this wasn't going to happen, but it was a way to keep my head in the game, so to speak, that if they knocked on the door and said, Mike, we just want to see how things turned out, that I wouldn't embarrass them or have to make excuses doesn't mean I didn't make some bad decisions in my life. We all do. 
but I don't think they would look at me and feel horrified and think, oh, my gosh, what happened to our son? And, you know, they really gave me the values by which I've lived my life. And it was about fairness and it was about decency and about respect for other people's property. <clears throat> but my dad, as a construction worker, um, construction workers are not about nuance. Black and white, you know, if my dad asked me a question, he expected a very short answer. If I gave him a lengthy answer, he'd get very irritated, look over the top of his glasses, and he'd say, Mike, if I wanted a story, I'd ask you for a story. I didn't ask for a story. I asked you a question. Now, what's the answer? Donald Trump reminds me of my dad and all those great construction workers that I grew up with because, let's face it, he's involved with the construction industry. From what I've read about his bio, he worked on construction jobs um, that is, you know, where his father was building buildings and so forth. <clears throat> There's no better workers than blue-collar construction workers. Uh, and, and it's a very exacting profession. It's no different from college. My father had, I believe, a four-year apprenticeship. They don't just hand you a wrench and say, here you go, you're a plumber, go, go build something. You start out as an apprentice and a helper, and it takes years before you get that union card. And if you ask my dad what he did for a living, and justifiably, he'd puff out his chest, he'd say, I'm a plumber by trade, by trade, because it meant the world to him that he was a professional. But his choice of language was typical of construction workers. Never in front of my mom, because that would have violated his sensibilities, but away from the house, the four-letter language that was interesting. And his friends were the same way. And they weren't about nuance, and neither is Donald Trump. But I think when, when Trump tried, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Trump either. But what he was trying to say is when you start looting, bad things are going to happen. I would have said, and I'm not the president, and, but my degree was in communications. I call it my BA and BS. And my mom used to say it's not what you say but how you say it. I would have been inclined to say violence begets violence. And I fear that with all of the violence playing out in those streets, all those businesses being destroyed, the livelihoods of so many families being wiped away, um, this pattern of violence uh, has to stop because violence begets violence. And that's the last thing we want to see, not just in Minneapolis, but anywhere. It's right to demonstrate. I'm a huge supporter of the First Amendment. I do it right here in my program. I do it when I've testified before Congress. I've done it in, in front of, you know, when I've been able to speak in front of members of the armed forces, in public events and radio shows that I'm invited on and TV shows. I'm a great believer in the First Amendment. I've always said that. We need to defend the First Amendment. If you lose the First Amendment, you're no longer free. Look what's happening in Hong Kong, and we'll get to that momentarily. <clears throat> but if you look at the Constitution, the First Amendment says the right for peaceable assemblage, not for burning down buildings and threatening people and throwing bricks and, and explosives and shooting guns. And I understand the anger. But to tar all law enforcement, because one guy, or in this case I would say four guys from what I could see, did something horrendous beyond anything I could fathom, doesn't mean that <clears throat> everybody with a badge is a bad guy. The great majority of men and women in law enforcement are among the best people in the world. It's been a privilege to be a law enforcement officer. I worked very closely with the New York City Police Department. I worked closely with the New York State Police, the New Jersey State Police, police departments from other countries. And law enforcement officers as a whole are courageous and decent and moral 
and law-abiding. Is everybody in law enforcement a good guy? No. And, you know, we pay attention when there's something as horrific as what we just saw play out in Minnesota, uh, the stuff of nightmares. But think about how many doctors aren't competent and how many lawsuits, because I looked it up once, it was, it was a huge number. Every year, how many lawsuits are filed against doctors? How many doctors have their license to practice suspended? How many are even prosecuted for malpractice, causing people um, health and even their lives because they screw up? There are doctors who shouldn't be doctors. There are airline pilots who shouldn't be airline pilots. We've all had teachers who certainly shouldn't have been teachers. In law enforcement, though, if you're a round peg in a square hole, lives can be lost. Tremendous damage can be inflicted on society and on individuals. We need to maybe change the way we do business, how we recruit law enforcement. You know, just I've been thinking about this all day, that article I read decades ago about maybe telling people, you know what, you've done five years, we'll give you, I don't know, a, a, you know, a 20% pension, a 25% pension. Go become a school teacher. Go, you know, become an auto mechanic. Do something else. And, and cops burn out. They do. If you're a police officer and you've been patrolling a community and you see children go from child to teenager to criminal or, or, or a girl that maybe you, you've, you've always said hello to in the morning, you find out she was murdered or raped, it does damage. Uh, I remember walking into the house of a drug dealer. We had a warrant on this individual. And there was a, a little baby, not even a year old, crawling around on the floor with a diaper that hadn't been changed probably in days. And this kid was crawling around on top of crack vials and bullets. And the baby's diaper had leaked all over the floor. And, and the mother and the father of this child were going to be taken into custody. The guy was wanted for murder in Florida. We brought in a SWAT team. Um, the child had to be given over to child welfare. We walked out of that apartment, and I was with a homicide detective who had helped with the case, and he walked out of the apartment, went to the curb, and puked. Now, this is a, a, a tough character, a guy that was used to seeing dead bodies. But seeing that little six- or eight-month-old child crawling, crawling along on crack vials and cutting his hands because the crack vials had broken and cut him. And, and you look at this little kid, like I say, six or eight months old, whatever, an innocent little child. And if I remember correctly, his father was from Jamaica. Major drug dealer was accused of killing two police officers in a shootout in Florida. When you see this stuff, I'm going to tell you, a piece of you dies when you see a child in that kind of distress. You have to be an animal not to be affected by it. And when you see enough of those situations, it has an impact. And so we have cops committing suicide, cops with a drinking problem. Is that what happened with this cop? I have no idea. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't care. Because from everything I've read, he was involved with other incidents, many other incidents. Where was his department to say, hey, you're out of here? We had two agents, I remember, when I was a new agent, who had made arrests, and both times the person they arrested had to go to the ER. And these guys were really big guys. The people they arrested were short. And the boss called them aside and said, what happened? No, he resisted arrest. And so the guy is banged up and needed to go to the ER. Watch what you're doing. This doesn't look right. There's something going on here. A week later, similar situation. 
they were split up. They were grounded. They were, they were forced to stay in the office, and they were told, we're going to put you in a squad, but you're not going to be making any more arrests. I don't want you out on the street. You're a threat. I mean, immediately, management held a meeting. There was no, there was no screwing around. They said, we don't know what happened, but whatever it is, it just doesn't look right. They did an investigation. There was no clear proof that they overreacted, but it had the bosses concerned, and they said, okay, we're going to put you in a squad where you will be probably making zero arrests. They were in a squad. I was in a squad in those days where we were making an arrest virtually every day. They were immediately moved out of the squad, and they were split up and put to different squads, And, and the feeling was that there was something going on that was wrong. And they were monitored. In fact, one guy went to a different office in another state, and, and management called the other state to keep an eye on that guy. He's a problem. And apparently they never had an incident after that. It was enough to, to shake them up to understand that you don't conduct yourself in a certain way. And the person, the, the people that were injured, it was no big, it wasn't, you know, that they were in life or death situations. But the bosses had the sense that excessive force had been used, not once but twice, and they said, that's it before this gets out of hand. And there was a squad meeting, and and it was explained to us what had happened. And it was hammered into our heads, minimum force necessary to affect the arrest means minimum force. But to see politicians using this as a political device, if you will, is beyond anything I could imagine also. We've got to stop this nonsense about politicizing everything and just look at the situation and say, where do we go from here? How do we prevent these tragedies from happening? How do we end what might well have been a case of bigotry? And I have to tell you, I'm Jewish. Jews aren't necessarily visible as Jews. My last name, Cutler, that could be anything. And I can't even tell you how hurtful it is when sometimes I'd be talking to somebody and they'd start telling you anti-Semitic jokes like it's a big ha-ha. And then you look at the guy and you say, by the way, I'm Jewish. Oh, I didn't mean anything by it. Oh, no, then why did you tell me that? And then they look at you. Well, can I apologize? No, you can't apologize. You can't take it back. You're a jerk. Nobody physically hurt me. But the the mindset of bigotry that we're going to treat each other differently, and it's fostered by the media, folks. When you have people going out there talking about, um, you know, white privilege, I didn't experience white privilege, you know. I was privileged to have the parents I had, but I, everything I did, it was me working for it. When you see the news, do media, do, do polls, you know, the elections are coming, black voters, Latino voters, Jewish voters, Christian voters. No, we're American voters. If you want to talk about demographics, then let's talk about people that are retired versus someone getting out of college. My concerns are very different from my kids' concerns. If you live on a farm, you're probably very concerned about soybean prices. Try to ask someone in midtown Manhattan if they care about soybean prices. They'll laugh at you. But then if you go to the farm and you talk about mass transit, they're going to have a good yuck over that and say, why the heck would I give a damn about subways? I live on a ranch or I live on a farm. Those are demographics that make sense. The guy that dropped out of high school has different concerns from the worker who has a Ph.D. and and is doing research. Different concerns. People who have kids have different concerns from people who don't have children. These are rational demographics. But what do you see in the news all the time? Black voter, Latino voter, this vote. It's divisive. 
It's anti-American. I thought, I thought, fool that I am, that America's slogan, so to speak, is e pluribus unum, out of many one. If we're supposed to be out of many one, why are we differentiating the dreams of blacks from Latinos, from whites, from Jews, from Christians? All Americans, I think, and I don't care if you lean left or right, I'm a registered Democrat. All Americans, all Americans want the military to keep our enemy as far from our shores as possible, law enforcement to make our streets safe, and the schools to educate our children effectively. You would think. You would think. But how frequently do you hear this crap? Black voters want this, and Latino voters want that. And it's divisive, and people start to believe the nonsense. They think, gee, I guess since I'm a Latino, I should be wanting that, or I should be wanting something different because I'm Jewish. No, it doesn't work that way. We keep on getting divided by the media. We keep getting divided by the politicians who want to exploit whatever they can exploit for their own selfish gains. And in the process, they're screwing us over and damaging our country. Tragically, people are bigots. Racism, bigotry, prejudice, unfortunately it's there, usually out of ignorance. I remember working with one guy who said to me, he said, you know, Mike, you're the first Jew I've ever worked with, and I always thought Jews were strange because I grew up in a neighborhood and went to a school, I went to Catholic school, and you're the first Jew I've ever known. And he says, you guys are pretty cool. And I just looked at him, I said, oh, really? Shocker, isn't it? And he said, no, but I I just wanted to tell you that I, I feel like a fool. Probably the best story I can tell you, and it's worth repeating. I, I worked at Brooklyn College um, because I had to support myself and my mother, especially after my dad died and a year later, she was gone. And one of the jobs I had was I was a projectionist, and I worked in the audiovisual center, and I photographed art books for the art classes. We made slides out of it, and then those slides were used in, in the art classes so the professors could point to those slides. So I would make the photos at Brooklyn College, And then sometimes I would actually be out in the projection booth uh, projecting those images on the wall for the art classes. We had a a guy come and and work at Brooklyn College. He was a very quiet black man, very unassuming. You would almost think, I won't say boring, but sort of almost nerdish. A really nice guy, very considerate. Uh, He was always concerned because we used to use really hot floodlights during the summer in that little room. It would get to be over 100 degrees in there. And he would come in every 15 minutes, knock on the door and say, go take a breather. You're in there too long. He was one of the gentlest, kindest men I ever knew. His name was George Bing. And one day I got into a discussion with George about my love of aviation. My heroes growing up were astronauts and test pilots. I got letters from Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. I did a little single engine flying after my mom died. But back then, this is while she was still alive. But I told him how much I loved airplanes. Well, guess what? It turned out that George Bing, uh, this wonderful, quiet, gentle guy, had been one of the Tuskegee Airmen. Think about that. And I hadn't really known much about the Tuskegee Airmen. So we were in the library. That's where the audiovisual center was. And he picked up a couple of books for me to read. And my gosh, I was hooked. He used to fly P-51 Mustangs over Europe during the Second World War. And you would never know it. And he told me how difficult it was. He wanted so much to defend America, but because they were black, they were treated like second-class citizens. And it led to some unbelievable conversations about racism and bigotry and slavery 
and the military. I, I, I wish I had stayed in touch with George. Now, the interesting story to that is one day there was, I believe, on Martin Luther King's birthday, a contest that they talked about on television. I had lost touch with George Bain. I graduated and went on to my career. And it turns out there was this young man who was Italian-American, and he wrote a, a piece on, on the, the, the horrors of bigotry and racism. And his father, or his grandfather, I guess, or uncle, one of his family members, forgive me for not knowing this, it might have been his uncle, was a bomber pilot in the Second World War. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Tuskegee Airmen, please take the time and, 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 and go look it up. It'll blow your mind. And it'll show you how stupid we can be as, as a species, as human beings. <clears throat> but the P-51 Mustang was specifically designed as a fighter escort to escort our bombers over Germany so they could do their bombing runs without being shot down by the Messerschmitts, by the German Luftwaffe. And he said that his, his I believe, uncle was probably the most racist guy in the world, used the N-word with great profusion. He was just a hateful sort of character. And he was in his 20s. And he was flying over Germany, and out of the sun came a flight of Luftwaffe fighter planes. And they figured they were dead because, you know, they were these big lumbering bombers, I guess B-17s or maybe B-29s, lumbering bombers, not maneuverable. They're sitting ducks. And as these Messerschmitts started diving towards them, from the opposite side of the sky came a flight of P-51 Mustangs, and they blew every Nazi plane out of the sky. And he said, you know, his, his uncle was crying joys of tear because he thought he was about to die. He wasn't going to go home to see his mother again. And the pilots from the other plane, once all the Nazis were where they belonged, dead, this P-51 Mustang pulled up even with his cockpit. And he went to salute the pilot and saw this big black face staring at him. And he said when he landed, his uncle ran up to this black guy hugged him and kissed him on the cheek. And he came home and he told his family what an idiot he was because if it wasn't for the brilliant flying of those incredible aviators who happened to be black, and not black aviators, they're aviators who happen to be black. We're all human beings and we're all Americans, damn it. Chokes me up. That was the last time he ever used the N-word. In fact, he invited a bunch of those pilots over to his house for dinner after the war and so forth. Well, the reward that this kid got who was on television for writing this really great story was to go up in a B-17 bomber with one of the members of the Tuskegee Air Force. As it turned out, it was George Bing, and I got to see him on TV walking out to the airplane with this young man who, as a high school senior, wrote that amazing story about his uncle and how he went from being a bigot to being a good American when the Tuskegee Airmen saved his life. This is the kind of stuff we should be focusing on. I'm tired of people trying to make political hay out of bigotry and stupidity. And if you really want to help American kids living in poverty, stop the bullshit speeches, for God's sakes. Start finding opportunities for Americans living in poverty to have good careers. And don't tell me that $15 an hour is going to do it. If you want to break the cycle of poverty... The key, folks, is education. The key is also effective immigration law enforcement. I've made this point innumerable times. We keep on bringing in high-tech workers to displace American workers, and I want to know why the hell we're doing it. Alan Greenspan testified for Chuck Schumer and said that the solution to wage inequality 
is to make American high-tech workers compete with foreign workers who will work for less money. That way we get rid of the wage premium that we're paying to American highly, uh, the American privileged elite. And for, for Greenspan, the privileged elite are middle-class workers. And neither party stands up to that. The media wouldn't cover that hearing. I confronted Bob Goodlatte, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, and I said, how the hell do you let that stand? I said, this guy testified on behalf of Chuck Schumer. I said, you're a Republican. Why the hell aren't you going after them? Well, it turns out that Bob Goodlatte was an immigration lawyer who specialized in H-1B visas, and he told me how his son loved H-1B visas and would love for him to bring in tens of thousands of more brilliant programmers. And I checked out who his son was. His son got to start with Zuckerberg at Facebook. Poverty is a disease, and it's a curable disease. Really, it is. But there was an interesting article that said that children living in poverty suffer the equivalent of an 18, I think it was an 18-point reduction in IQ. Poverty, hunger. It's hard to study when the loudest noise you're hearing is your stomach grumbling. It's hard to believe in the future when you live in abject poverty and you, have a, and you live in an apartment house where there's no heat in the wintertime and rats run through the buildings. I know I've been in those buildings doing my job as an agent. We need to wake up, America. We're better than that. We're told about the American dream, but it seems like Americans need not apply, but we'll do it for illegal aliens who shouldn't be here. We're using deceptive language to confuse people. We're told the word alien is terrible, but the A in DREAM Act is alien, as in development, um, relief, and education for alien minors. We're more concerned with providing the American dream to people who shouldn't be here than with providing the American dream to American kids of color. I want someone to explain that to me. I really do. I want someone to explain to me how these companies that claim to be green, like Apple, can build their factories in third-world hellholes like China, where there are no environmental standards. There are no safety standards. Oh, we're green. Yeah, sure. The only green they are is the green in terms of money, which brings us to where we are with China today. We've had a succession of administrations going back to Nixon and Kissinger that have opened up China. Why? To placate the businessmen. Oh, we've got cheap labor and we have a new market. Let's do it. China is a dictatorship. It is a brutal dictatorship. It is a communist country. And, and I remember after the wall came down in Berlin, all these yo-yos at State Department were dancing the jig. Oh, we've killed communism. How did you kill communism? Cuba is a communist country. It sits 90 miles off our coast. And think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962, where Russia planted nuclear missiles 90 miles off our coast. Russia might not be a communist country. I would argue it's still a dictatorship for all intents and purposes, if you consider who Putin is. Once KGB, always KGB. But what about China? China has never stopped being a communist country. Yes, they they promised that they're going to stop having a controlled economy, but that day is never coming. That will happen on the 12th of never. Their goal is world domination. And so President Trump is handcuffed. You never want to negotiate from a position of weakness. You always want to negotiate from a position of strength. And today the president took a stand and said we're not going to treat Hong Kong 
as a separate entity from China because China's not treating it as a separate entity. He's right. And then he said we're not going to allow graduate students from China affiliated with the PLA, the, the People's Liberation Army, the, the Army of China. We're going to make sure that we don't let them in. Well, we don't know how to make sure. There was just a report that came out or a news release about a woman who was at one of our universities who concealed the fact that she is a member of the Chinese military. In fact, if you look at the piece that I, that I posted, um, let, me, let me pull this up for you because this is really important. Um, let, me, let me start out. The, the article that I'm referencing, and I hope everybody will check this article out after my program, and please forward the link to everybody. Post it on Facebook. God knows maybe they won't censor you. I mean, this whole business with censorship should infuriate everybody. Right, wrong, or indifferent, freedom of speech is freedom of speech. The only thing you don't have the right to do is yell fire in a crowd at the end when there is no fire. But the idea that some corporation is going to censor us and fact-check us, and they'll put articles up by Iran and articles up by every other communist and totalitarian country, but there's concern about what, what our politicians have to say, this is how you swing an election. That's not what this is supposed to be about. Without a First Amendment, there is no freedom. There is no liberty. Let's be real clear about it. I know people get all worked up about the Second Amendment. They support the Second Amendment. We need that amendment not just to protect ourselves from criminals, but against tyranny. And I've carried a gun since I was first an agent for, for decades. But there has to be caveats attached to owning a gun and, and, and so forth, training and background checks and that sort of thing. But I, I wrote an article, and this was the front page magazine on May the 8th, Chinese Espionage Made Possible by Immigration Failures, and the subtitle, What Visa Fraud Does to Our National Security and Public Health. This was back on May the 8th. And one of the things that I, I reported on, and by the way, we've had people like the chairman of the Harvard Chemistry and Chemical Biology Department uh, arrested by the FBI for allegedly concealing the fact that he'd been given quite a bit of money by the Chinese government that he concealed, and then he was working covertly in the Chinese labs in, in Hunan province. And this guy's not Chinese. He's American, okay? He's, and when I say American, a, a, an American American born in the United States, not naturalized. And we've also seen spies who became naturalized citizens to facilitate their espionage. Terrorists have done the same tactic. But this guy, Charles Lieber, um, is, is alleged to have committed a serious offense with the Chinese government. So let me read this to you, because this is really uh, important. On January 28, 2020, the Department of Justice issued a press release, Harvard University professor and two Chinese nationals charged in three separate China-related cases that began with this excerpt. Here's the excerpt. The Department of Justice announced today that the chair of Harvard University's Chemistry and Chemical Biology Department and two Chinese nationals have been charged in connection with the aiding of the People's Republic of China. Dr. Charles Lieber, 60, chair of the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Harvard University, was arrested this morning and charged by criminal complaint with one count of making a materially false, fictitious, and fraudulent statement. Lieber will appear this afternoon before Magistrate Judge Marianne B. Fowler in federal court in Boston, Massachusetts. Yang King Ye, 29, a Chinese national, was charged in an indictment today with one count each of visa fraud, making false statements, acting as an agent of a foreign government in conspiracy. Ye is currently in China, or Ye, rather, Y-E. Zhao Song Zheng, 30, a Chinese national, was arrested December 10, 2019, at Boston's Logan International Airport. 
and charged by criminal complaint with attempting to smuggle 21 vials of biological research to China. On January 21, 2020, Zeng was indicted in one count of smuggling goods from the United States and one count of making false, fictitious, or fraudulent statements. He's been detained since December 30, 2019. Young King Yi is believed to currently be in China. Her indictment alleges that she concealed her position as a lieutenant and the People's Liberation Army of the Chinese Communist Party, and that she was under the direct supervision of a colonel in the PLA, People's Liberation Army, at the time that she applied for her exchange, visitor, exchange visa, J-1 visa, to, <coughs> pardon me, to attend Boston University's Department of Physics, Chemistry, Biomechanical Engineering, and Center of Polymer Studies. It is further alleged that consistent with her position in the People's Liberation Army, she was tasked with, among other things, conducting research, assessing U.S. military websites, sending U.S. documents and information to China by masking her affiliation to the PLA. So the president said, well, if you're involved with the PLA, we're not going to let you in. She was involved with the PLA, and we did let her in because she was able to conceal that membership. You would think the president would want to take a sterner measure. I would like to see something stronger than that. Here's the problem. My mother used to say to me, you don't throw away the dirty water until you have clean water. At least 95% of our antibiotics are manufactured in China. Much of our equipment that we need for medicine and industry are manufactured in China. So those companies that are telling you, oh, we're green, we're looking out for the environment. Really? If they were looking out for the environment, they wouldn't be moving their operations to third world countries that have no controls over the environment. Think about that. More lies, more BS, more nonsense. And because most of our antibiotics and other vital materials and sources of, of materials is in China, they could turn off the spigot tomorrow. China could tell us tomorrow, we are going to lock everything down. You're not getting anything. They already said that with the coronavirus. They said that if they wanted to, they could let us die in a sea of disease by turning off the flow of antibiotics. Corporate greed has boxed this great nation into a corner, all about profit and money and cost out. Cost out. Make stuff that used to be good as cheaply as possible, so maybe you can make one more penny on each item, and if you sell enough items, whoopee, you get a bigger payday. This undermines our national security, our public health. It endangers American lives. Also, that corporate greed can satisfy its hunger for more profit, more profit, more profit, and more profit. I assure you that if we were manufacturing what we needed in the United States, the president could take whatever measures are necessary to safeguard the freedoms of the people in Hong Kong. He is handcuffed handcuffed by our pharmaceutical companies, handcuffed by these corporations that have no moral concerns about anything. For them, it's all about one thing and one thing alone, and that is greed and profit. You know, the communists said that the capitalists will sell you the rope with which you will hang them. Today, folks, America is having a fire sale on rope, and we're seeing the price. And we're not the only ones paying the price. The poor people of Hong Kong are paying the price. And the people in Taiwan must be shaking in their boots. And I don't remember if I had told you this in a prior program, but I remember taking a flight to California a bunch of years ago, and I was sitting next to this very nice young lady 
who thought she had all the answers. You know, my parents warned me that when you meet someone that tells you they have all the answers, run for your life. Well, this gal was probably not even 30 years old, just got her master's degree, was working for a major magazine, and said, Mr. Cutler, I know all about China. They're a trade partner. They would never pose a threat to us. I said, well, one day they're going to want Taiwan back. She said, that day will never happen. I said, don't be so sure. And I said, the more that we allow them to manufacture for us over there, the more they have us by the short hairs, and one day we're going to pay the price. She told me that I was old school, that I had no idea what I was talking about, and she was kind of smug, very nice about it, but basically told me that I was an old fool. Well, I don't know where she is these days, but I wonder if as she looks at the headlines and sees the riots in Hong Kong and what it is that China is now doing, I wonder how much of a fool she still thinks I was based on what I had told her on that flight from New York to California. We've got to start to elect politicians who put the lives of Americans ahead of all else, who put the future of American children above all else. American kids should have high expectations of what they can achieve if they're willing to study hard and work hard. For kids living in poverty, those opportunities aren't there. They're never going to be there. When you have to put down enough money for a student loan that when you pay it back, it looks more like a mortgage payment, how in the world do you do that if you're living in poverty? The people making the decisions don't relate to that. I remember when my dad came home when he was laid off from work, my mom's eyes would fill with tears because she knew that he might be out of work for six months. So we'd start eating tuna fish sandwiches and and, and macaroni and cheese. That was our dinner so that they could hang on to this house, which now I'm blessed to live in. My office is in what used to be my bedroom, and a couple of my kids actually slept in this room. I couldn't be any more home if I tried. But kids living in poverty... What does their future look like? It's bleak. And between drugs and crime, and when you listen to the Democrats talking about opportunity zones where they're going to help minorities sell pot, is that really what we want to do at a time when we've had a huge problem with the heroin epidemic? Is to get people high? Why? So that they won't bother you? So that they'll be stoned and not know what's going on? We know that when children... Teenagers use marijuana. It does permanent damage to their brains. With friends like that, these kids don't need enemies. My parents told me, unfortunately, anti-Semitism can be a problem. You know, my mother escaped the Holocaust. Her mother wasn't so lucky. She was killed in Poland. I was named for her. She died because of our religion. But my parents said to me, you know, they said, you're going to find some idiots who won't like you because you're a Jew. And they said, you know what the solution is? Be so good at whatever it is you do when you become an adult that even the people that don't like you will have to respect you and hire you. The best, the best revenge is living well. If you work hard and you develop a skill set that people really need, whether people like you or not, your future will be guaranteed. Because everything to them was about guaranteeing my future. As Americans, we need to do this not only for our own children, but for our fellow Americans' children of all colors. This nonsense about race has to stop. It really has to stop. We've got to have stop hearing this nonsense in the news about black voters and Latino voters. It's a divisive message, 
and it's tearing this country apart. We should be well beyond that by now. We really should. We need to do better than this. Nothing less than the survival of our country is on the line. Nothing less than the future of our children and their children is on the line. And people say to me, well, I'm one person. What in the world can I do? And the answer is very simple. History is written by individuals. It really is. Think about the impact of individuals who stepped forward at a critical time in American history and they made all the difference. We all have that, capa- that capability, that capacity, if only we're willing to step forward and make a difference. We have to work with our neighbors, have conversations with our neighbors, and we must celebrate that First Amendment. That's so critical. Let's get away from the personalities and the toxic screaming and all that other nonsense. This country's enemies love it when we fight with each other. You know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abe Lincoln was completely right. As Americans, we should be focusing on what makes us most similar, not what makes us most different. And believe me, the similarities far and away outweigh any differences that we may have. It's about having morality, about having hope in the future, and about being good citizens by being involved in the political process. You can't be a good parent if you're not involved in the process because our children are depending on us. And one day, our grandchildren and their children. The question is, what kind of a world will we have left them? What will the legacy be that we will be remembered for? Will we have done the right thing or the stupid and lazy thing? Only we can write that history, and we're writing it every day. And what I saw happen in Minnesota broke my heart. We should never see anything like that again. We have to have accountability, accountability in law enforcement, but accountability also from the politicians that we elect to represent us and our communities and our country. And too many politicians get into office, and they think they have all this power Well, that guy Jack Stern that I told you about in the beginning of this hour also said to us that with that authority that you're given with that badge comes great responsibility and accountability. And he said, you know, if you're ever involved in an incident, always write the memo the best way you can. But he said you should never have to write the great American novel to justify the actions that you may have taken when you were on duty. You know, be honest, show integrity. Boy, that's a word that we don't hear enough about these days, integrity. It's a word that we need to start to demand of those people that we elect to public office. We need to demand and expect from them integrity. And when they fail to live up to that standard, we need to dump them. We're a nation of over 320 million people. We should be able to find some good leaders out of a population that's that big and that diverse. As always, I want you to know it's uh, really great spending an hour with you at the end of the week. I hope my program is thought-provoking. Please check out my uh, podcasts over here at michaelcutler.net. Well, that's my website, actually, and the Michael Cutler Hour. Also, please remember that I do podcasts with Dennis Michael Lynch at Team DML. It is a subscription service, but I think it's one that you'll find worthwhile. Again, that's uh, over at Team DML. Check out my articles at Front Page Magazine. If you like the articles, post the links on Facebook and send them to as many of your friends as you can and create what I call a bucket brigade of truth. Please remember, folks, democracy is not the spectator's sport. I look forward to seeing you again next week right here at the Michael Cutler Hour.
athlete. Stay well.